Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dowzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. It's a tale as old as time. Boy meets girl. Boy brings girl to his sister's wedding. Boy and girl slowly become entangled in an ever-tightening web of vengeance, family, and violence, emblematic of the crumbling American dream. When our guests today offered to come on to discuss the pinnacle of American cinema, we could not refuse. Joining us to discuss Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, Arcado Institute Senior Vice President for Policy, Gene Healy. Hi. And former Catoite, Diego Zuluaga. Hi there. Today we're going to focus mainly on the first film, but I'm sure the whole series will come up at some point. And the, even though the second film is explicitly more about an immigration story, the first film we can't really separate or distangle from from the immigration topic as it focuses almost entirely on immigrants and their subsequent generations and their families and how they interact with each other. So I think it might be a good place to start and talk about what does this film do to the classic like American dream story and how it relates to like the larger immigration narrative, um, especially in this time period in the U.S. Well, I think it's an immigrant story right from the beginning with the uh, the scene with the undertaker, Amerigo Bonacera, which I think means America good night. Uh, it's uh, not not all that subtle. Um, and, uh, right from the start, you have, uh, you know, you're introduced to Don Corleone in the, through this story of the undertaker whose daughter has been sexually assaulted. And, uh, he, he went to the police like a good American and he wanted justice, but he didn't get justice. And now he's, uh, paying his respects to the Godfather in search of justice and certainly it's a an immigrant story throughout you know in the beginning of of 2 when young Vito Corleone is quarantined for smallpox uh and his room looks out directly at the statue of liberty these themes run throughout all three films i i agree with gene i think in some ways it's a quintessentially american rags to riches story where you have vito corleone arriving in the states with nothing as a child and we then realize that he's become a very prosperous man, if not necessarily in the conventional way. Um, Bonacera, of course, opens the film by saying, I believe in America, America made my fortune. And to some extent, it's quite visibly the case that these people have become much better off, improved their condition and that of their families as a result of moving to America. Of course, the irony behind all of this is that Bonacera is coming to the Godfather to seek justice. Uh, in a very un-American way, because the American courts have failed him, and the Godfather is dispensing justice and operating his own little straight structure, uh, quite apart from the American system. And I think this comes across in the book maybe a little more than in the film, but the Godfather is certainly very cynical about the American system and what America means for his family and what he owes America. So there's a contradiction there in that you see the immigrants' prosperity as you often see in the American uh, story, but also a completely different kind of um, evolution from arrival in America that is unconventional and in some ways amoral or, or, or even immoral. And what does Vito Corleone, the godfather, 
really do with that frustration with the American system because you can see that while he's enacting things with violence and coercion uh, in similar ways that the state does, he is also creating effective change that the state cannot. So, so how does that square with him trying to negotiate that power and creating order as such? Does, does he sort of come to embody the state? What is that relationship like? Well, the, the first few things that, that happened in The Godfather, the first few services that Don Corleone performs are sort of state services, right? Justice slash vengeance uh, for, for the under, undertaker whose daughter has been assaulted. Then the second visit he gets early on in, in Godfather 1 is from the boss of Enzo the Baker uh, to, to straighten out an immigration problem. So you, you're introduced to the La Cosa Nostra as a Paris state organization that is uh, performing sort of basic government functions for an insular immigrant, immigrant community. Uh, certainly that's not all the, the mafia did, but that's, that's how we're introduced to it in Godfather 1. The message from the beginning romanticizes the role of the mafia compared to the American state because Bonasera is Italian, his daughter is Italian. She's been assaulted by what seems to be described as WASP, sort of Anglo-Saxon, more prosperous, more established uh, men from, from well-connected families. And that's what, what gets them out of a tougher sentence because Bonasera's worry is that they've been sentenced to, I think, two years in prison, but the sentence has been suspended. And he's outraged that there is no justice delivered to on, on behalf of his daughter. And so he says, oh, justice uh, will be given to us by Don Corleone. And that's, that's the opening thing. And so the Godfather from the beginning is presented as a very fair man, someone who does everything for his family, only reacts to uh, other people's attacks against him. Everything is for business. Nothing is personal. There is no... F- free vindictiveness uh, in in his actions. And it is doing sort of supplementing the state sometimes in a in a fair way. And of course, this all starts at a wedding where as the father of the bride, he cannot refuse any um, demands made of him. So even there, there's a code of honor and a sense that there are norms being followed and respected that gives us, I think, a probably rose-tinted view of how these guys operated in practice. Yeah, uh, I think Diego is ex- exactly right. Uh, this is an extremely romanticized vision of organized crime. The, the uh, Corleone family, at least, are, are these no, are the noble Romans, uh, the mafiosi as as noble Romans. Uh, Corleone uh, means lionheart, right, and. Uh, the activity they're introduced with is, you know, quasi-legitimate activity. And throughout, Don Corleone is is really the good Don. Uh, you see him in two, really only kill two people. Uh, Fenucci, who, the black hand, who's preying on the immigrant community. And, you know, who's going to miss that guy? And uh, he goes back to Sicily and kills the mafia Don that, that had killed his father. Uh, so 
there's this story that uh, he rises to power um, sorely, uh, sort of on the wings of justice and, and provides a, a service to the community. And, you know, there, there, there may be some truth to that, but it, it is only part of the picture. This, incidentally, is, uh, uh, you know, we're a libertarian podcast, uh, Murray Rothbard, uh, Mr. Libertarian, uh, was a huge fan of the Godfather movies, and uh, he he wrote a number of reviews of, of uh, you know he wrote reviews of one, two, and three, and huge mob movie fan. And one of the things he appreciated about it about the Godfather cycle was how it romanticized the mob. He wrote about how organized crime is essentially anarcho capitalist. That the Godfather was dispensing justice. And uh, later in life, he, he wrote a review of Goodfellas. Rothbard absolutely hated Goodfellas. He, he said they're, 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 you know, in contrast to The Godfather, the characters in Goodfellas are depicted as psychotic, repellent punks who engage in violence uh, at the, you know, the drop of a hat. And, uh, you know, this made Goodfellas inferior to the Godfather movies. Uh, well, they're both great movies, but uh, the thing about it was the, the Godfather is based on utterly romanticized fiction. I mean, Mario Puzzo, uh, you know, grew up in Hell's Kitchen, didn't know any mobsters. Goodfellas is based on a true life account from a mob associate, Henry Hill. So one of them is actually based on a, a, a mob memoir. That's the one that uh, shows a seedier, more violent side of organized crime. That's the one Rothbard hated. The one that he liked was uh, Puzo's and, and Coppola's version where the mob are essentially uh, noble Romans dispensing justice. Interesting sort of blind spot there, I think. It's funny you mentioned that because I, while I was watching and I saw, I saw this quite some time ago. This, my rewatch had probably been like five or 10 years since I've seen it, but I was wondering like how accurate does the movie like depict organized crime? Like obviously it's a romanticized version, but like so, there have to be like some elements that are like relatively, let's say, based on types of crimes that might have happened or based on true events. And like I'm it's kind of wondering how like, closely tied some of this stuff was to like real life <laughs> i i think it's it's a great question because at the time that the godfather is set which is immediately after world war ii running up into 1951 this was a particularly quiet and prosperous period for the mob in the sense that the wars and the violence of the 1930s had passed prohibition was no longer and there was huge business in the post-war business with all the price controls and everything else going on. There was a huge business in the illegal but relatively legitimate activities of trafficking in goods that might be price controlled or might be in short supply or helping people with paperwork, um, helping people find a job after they came back as GIs, things of that nature. Uh, of course, the New York mob in particular had just had the commission structure set up. This is where the five families come from. This was something arranged by Lucky Luciano, uh, the godfather of godfathers, uh, in order to keep the peace between the families. And they basically divvied up the territory of the five New York boroughs to make sure that everyone got their fair share. It was basically a cartel. 
And um, in some ways, it was effective at preserving the peace. Um, and this was also a time when law enforcement wasn't quite yet so focused on the mob. So you have the Kefova hearings, which are the sort of first federal effort at investigating the extent of organized crime. This was focused on interstate commerce at the time. You have that happen in the early 50s. But that's the first glimpse we really catch of some of the individuals involved. And it's not really until much later, I would say, the 70s and 80s, when with the eavesdropping that the government did, the FBI and so on, when you get the genuine persecution. And of course, by this time, they had got involved in dealing drugs and various other things that were seen as much more threatening to wider society. So during this time, the mob was sort of a, a, a purveyor of minor vices and in some ways slightly romantic because of the colorful, bombastic characters that were involved with their shiny suits and so on. So I think some of that scene setting has to do with this, with the fact that it was neither Al Capone's mob, nor was it John Gotti's. Um, it was it was a different period. Briefly, Gene had mentioned uh, gangster movies in general, not just The Godfather or Goodfellas. But th there is a distinction between, say, like Italian gangster movies and Irish gangster movies um, and how they both operated in reality. So what does the character of Tom do to complicate that and sort of showcase that divide between these two? By uh, bef before the, the time period that the uh, Godfathers set in, uh, in fact, by the early 30s, the Italian mob had really just wiped the floor with the Irish mob. If you've ever watched Boardwalk Empire, there there's a actually pretty decent, you know, the Lucky Luciano is a, is a character. Some of the Irish gangsters, Oni Madden, uh, are, I, I believe, is a character. And it, that depicts that period during Prohibition where uh, there was an Irish mob to speak of. Uh, there was competition between the Italian and Irish mob. And uh, there was actually, you know, sort of cross-pollination. Luciano uh worked with Meyer Lansky and uh, uh, Arnold Rothstein, uh, Jewish gangsters and Irish gangsters. And by the time of the, the Luciano uh, establishes the commission, uh, the Italians uh, really dominate the rackets. Uh, most of the Irish are driven out. You, I mean, you may know the, uh, the St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago in 1929 is Al Capone having um, Bugs Moran assassinated. There are fight turf wars uh, over bootlegging. But by, uh, you know, the post-war era, uh, by, by really 31, 32, uh, you, the, the Italian mob is dominant. Uh, the Irish mob is really the police and Tammany Hall. But the rackets are are dominated by the Italians, and as Diego says, this is relatively a period of peace. Uh, there, I think there's there are very few major mob figures assassinated uh, from uh, this long period, from the 30s to the 50s, of Albert Anastasia in, in 57. But it's a period of peace and prosperity for for the Italian mob, and. I think one strength that the Italian mob had was uh, uh, omerta and ethnic loyalty. Uh, the Irish gangs were uh, much more fluid, uh, more like high school cliques 
there there was this formal uh, regime structure that that was put into place with made men and uh, chains of command, and I think uh, that structure, which they talk about, uh, especially in two, uh, it was one of the advantages that the Italian mob had. Landry, in terms of your question about Tom Hagen, I would say that one of the paradoxes of Tom is that in some ways he is he's an adopted son of the Godfather. He was brought in from the street by Sonny Corleone, the older brother, as a charitable act. He stayed with them. And then he, he becomes consigliere. He's an excellent consigliere in some ways because he's very smart. He's very shrewd. He's cold. Um, he can certainly get things done. And even though the Don trusts him, Michael Corleone, when he uh, becomes the Don, he no longer has him as a first-line kind of advisor. It's his lawyer. And I think some of that has to do with the ethnic loyalty that Gene was just referring to. There's a sense that Hagen couldn't do things because he's not a blood relative that others would do for others. He doesn't. He maybe doesn't have the stomach either for it, but clearly Michael thinks that someone else, and they're all Italians after him, uh, is better placed to, to, to do the job that needs to be done as consigliere. In real life, somebody like Hagen probably wouldn't have had the authority. I mean, he couldn't have been a made man. Uh, and probably that's why it's, it's strange when he's put in charge uh, in two when uh, after the assassination attempt uh, and they, you know, Hagen becomes acting Don. I think that in, in real life, that would have been a very odd thing to see. Um, you know, you, in uh, Goodfellas, uh, the De Niro character uh, cannot be made a you know, made man because he's half Irish. There is like this common theme that I saw in a few older reviews of the movie even that were about capitalism and how this movie, it may be a critique of capitalism if you look at it in a certain lens. Can anyone flush that out? Like, do we think this movie is critiquing capitalism or what do we think? There's definitely an element there. Uh, The epigraph to the Puso book is from Balzac uh, behind every great fortune, there is a crime. And Coppola him, him, himself uh, first wasn't interested in the novel. The novel, he said, was kind of a sensationalist potboiler. And if you've ever read it, I mean, it's a tremendously entertaining novel, but uh, that's definitely true. Uh, Coppola wasn't all that interested in it at first, but then when he looked at it again and he had to take the job uh, because he was in dire straits financially. Um, he uh, he describes it as uh, the novel as a metaphor for American capitalism. And you definitely see that throughout uh, all three movies. Uh, there's, it be, becomes less and less subtle by the time you get to three. Um, but, you know, there there is uh, uh, Hyman Roth says we're bigger than U.S. Steel. There's uh, in one the the repeated refrain that, uh, you know, this isn't personal, it's just business. There's uh, definitely an undercurrent of uh, in the same way that uh, there's politicians and gangsters. There's that theme. We're not that different. We're kind of in the same line of work. There's a similar theme running throughout about American business. And I think it uh, it, it sometimes 
like particularly in two in in certain scenes the scene uh when they're uh in pre-revolutionary cuba and they're going around the room and here's the the big wig from uh united telephone and telegraph and then here's our associate michael corleone representing entertainment interests uh you're there's this uh quest to become legitimate and as michael corleone becomes more and more legitimate and and tries to uh make that happen uh he tends to see that everything is as corrupt as it was uh you know when when the corleone family was uh simply a a crime family and look at the business people who are depicted probably the closest to an honest business person is bonasera who's a petty undertaker uh, clearly not a very likable guy who <laughs> has neglected his relationship with the godfather until he needs something from him and then he will kneel down and kiss his hand only because he needs the favor he's not particularly excited when the godfather comes to see him to have the favor return uh, when his son has been killed and so there is a sense that these these business people are are petty people they're no better than the others they have no no higher sense of where there is the, there is this sort of great man theory underlying some of the film uh where business people don't fit in very well and indeed the other ones that are shown i can think of say waltz the producer who's also a successful guy he is a, a very nasty character and he's taking revenge against Johnny Fontaine for something that happened years ago not a very nice guy at all and then think of mo green the casino guy who despite being successful uh completely underestimates the corleone family and finds himself uh in in a very bad position after uh after not too long in in las vegas and so th- th- there is no particular reference from business that is positive or or kind of exemplary in in any of the three films i wouldn't say then again no major institution is left untouched really by the godfather because even the holy catholic church uh, is mired <laughs> in corruption almost as much as anyone else in the film yeah and th- there's hardly a religious ceremony in the uh, the three films that, that isn't accompanied by you know the, half the time they're showing a sacrament and there's a murder spree going on at the same time you know from uh, the baptism at the end of one a uh, similar scene in three, uh, it, it seems like blood and corruption and violence are intertwined with politics, religion, and business. One thing that you brought up, Gene, and sort of what Diego said about this sort of being tied into all of these institutions and this pretty cynical view of institutions and the world Gene, you had mentioned the difference between, you know, the the sort of Irish mob and the Italians and how the Italians had taken over and the Irish at a certain point had become police officers and, you know, Tammany Hall. There was – it might have not been that way to the godfather who played the police and judges and politicians like chess pieces like he would anyone else. But at the same time, he was saying, like, I want to put Michael, you know, he he might not be Don Corleone. He could be Senator or President Corleone. There is a view of ascendancy or upward mobility out of the sort of organized crime element. But there's also the belief that 
really politicians and the Corleones and, and those in the mob are not that different at all. Um, and Michael specifically says this to uh, Kay in the first film. He he says that there's really not so much different between the two of them. And she brings up the idea that they coerce everyone with violence. And he sort of rejects that and says that uh, that's that's not actually that different at all. So I, I think it's a, it's a pretty libertarian take to bring up the coercion inherent in politics. Um, and I was curious about how, while we might think that philosophically, in practice, how similar or different are the Corleones and the mafia from people in politics? Well, I, I think the, the Godfather cycle, uh, particularly with regard to the Corleone family is a highly romanticized view of organized crime, but you get highly romanticized views of politics in uh, things like uh, the West Wing, for example. Uh, it's no more accurate. Um, the, yes, the, the exchange in one, uh, when Michael has come back from, from Sicily and uh, he surprises Kay, uh, who's a school teacher now, and they have that, that terrific exchange where uh, he says, uh, you know, my father is no different than any other powerful man, a senator or president, anybody that has people he's responsible for. And Kay says, uh, oh, now you're being naive, Michael. You know, those, those men, senators and presidents don't have people killed. And uh, he looks at her with that, you know, cold stare and says, oh, really, who's being naive, Kay? Uh, <laughs> it's What's funny is, uh, you know, I, I had to go back and check the dates, but uh, this is uh, it, it's before Watergate. It's actually, you know, the Godfather is re released even before the Watergate burglary. It's before there have been some revelations of uh, criminality in the executive branch uh, in the early 70s. But it's really afterwards, uh, you know, it's the. It's the mid-70s, the church committee hearings, where you learn about things like uh, the Kennedy administration working with the mafia to try to assassinate Fidel Castro. And, uh, you know, you, you learn about uh, uh, so much corruption at high levels, uh, assassination programs run by the CIA, uh, usually terribly ineffective, but uh, the attem attempts were made. Um and uh, it really is part of this, uh, what's going on in a lot of movies in the 70s, this recognition that uh, that romantic, a romanticized view of the government uh, is, uh, is not justified by the facts. I, I think that runs throughout uh, all three movies. And there's... Uh, I also enjoy the uh, uh, at the beginning of two, uh, Senator Geary, uh, where uh, they he's trying to shake Michael down for for a payoff for a, a casino license, and uh, he Michael says, uh, you know, we're both part of the same hypocrisy, Senator, uh, which would be a great line to, to to have the opportunity to use if you're ever under heavy questioning at a, a Senate hearing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, it's a, a, 
I, I, I would say that I think the cynical view of government that uh, the films present is, is more justified than perhaps the romanticized view of organized crime and the Corleone family that it uh, that it depicts, uh, because I, I think that is uh really not historically accurate. I mean, certainly the uh, La Cosa Nostra uh, did some provide some services, did uh, engage in some uh, in commerce and, and uh, that uh, was suppressed by the state and uh, had some what we might as libertarians call legitimate functions. Uh, but uh, that by no means is that the whole story. I think that's right. In many ways, it operated like a very primitive and inefficient state because the protection money that was extorted from business owners in Italian communities in America was a very significant percentage of what they made. You know, the, the, the figures I hear quoted sort of 20, 30 percent. You know, these are we, we as libertarians would criticize that level of taxation. And this is on top of any other taxation that these people paid legitimately on their earnings. Not to mention that if you look at Sicily, where in fiction and in reality, the New York um, mafia families originated from Sicily is one of was one until very recently a, a very backward part of Italy, um, struggled to develop, and was only very partially under the purview of the Italian state. There was a constant struggle between the age-old administration of mafia overlords and other strongmen locally with the central Roman administration. Sometimes. It may have been for the better in the case of fighting back Mussolini, particularly during World War II. It seems the mob helped the American army get into Sicily uh, during the southern invasion. And, and, you know, in that case, you probably could say that the mob was marginally better than what was in charge in, in Italy elsewhere. But I don't think it was a particularly well-performing uh, substitute function for the state that the mob performed. You know, it's arbitrary. It was very much subject to the whim of the person at the top. There are plenty of stories of crazy people who ended up at the top. Albert Anastasia, who got killed in the barbershop of the Plaza Hotel, is uh, an example of that. He got killed because he had gone too crazy, and even the other members of the commission thought he was out of control. So the the way by which these people came to authority wasn't one that necessarily led the most talented or the best to get on top. Then again, none is politics, as we know from, from Hayek and others. So. Throughout the film, there's this interesting dynamic between like safe and clean businesses like gambling or other, you know, types of organized crime um, that the Corleone fa family's in, as opposed to drugs. And I'm kind of wondering why the Corleones wanted to avoid getting into that business. Why this specific hard line, I guess? My understanding is that that's, it's really not accurate. The mob is instrumental in uh, heroin trafficking uh, at a large scale in the United States in the 50s. There's an agreement, Palermo agreement, uh, with the Sicilian mob uh, where I, I don't know if it's Vito Genovese, uh, I think make, makes it. The, the five families uh, are very, uh, are heavily involved in, in uh, importing heroin uh, into the United States at a large scale. Uh, there's a French connection later. Um, and uh, so 
whatever reluctance or lip service uh, that was paid by a, a you know a few mafiosi at, at various times uh, about not getting into the drug trade. The fact is uh, the mob was heavily involved in, in the drug trade. Um, part of this depiction of uh, of Corleone as the as the good mobster, you, you never really see him. Well, there's one exception, uh, which I think, uh, you know, mostly you see uh, the Corleones, uh, you know, he, like I said, he kills Fenucci, who's preying on the people. Uh, you know, he's he's working out union problems. He's fixing immigration. Uh, but in Godfather 2, the way that they set up Senator Geary and uh, get Senator Geary in their pocket um, – it, now, it's never explicit, but I think uh, it's pretty clear that you remember he, uh, Geary wakes up at a brothel owned by Fredo, run by Fredo, and uh, there's a, a prostitute who's been murdered. Um, I think it's pretty clear that the Corleone family had her killed uh, in order to have leverage over this senator. And uh, that's as heinous an act as anything you see from uh, Barzini or the, uh, the, the bad mobsters in, in, in the films. Uh, so even within the Godfather cycle itself with its romanticized depiction of the, the good Don, uh, the Corleone family is, is certainly, you know, they're engaged in murder and murder of innocence at, at some, at, at various times. And of course, Don Corleone's views are a little bit generational and old-fashioned. At least that's the way they're depicted. It's a bit like the owner of, of the news store who refuses to sell pornographic magazines because, you know, he has an objection to it. And then the heirs to the business decide to expand the, the range that they sell because that's where business is going anyway. The commission meeting that we see, which, by the way, the exterior of the building where they meet, which is shown in the film, is the New York Federal Reserve. Make of that what you will. But um, what's discussed at the meeting is that they will use their political connections to try and make the drug trade legitimate or at least make it viable and less, and, and less of, a, of a target of law enforcement. In fact, there is an intervention by one of the lesser mobsters where he gets up and says, I want to make this business legitimate. I don't want my people selling it to children. And he, in fact, makes a very racist comment to the effect of, in my area, we're just focusing on selling this stuff to black people. And uh, that, I think, reflects also an attitude of the time, which was, you know, it's so long as you, uh, as, as you sold to, to certain groups that we didn't care about as much, it was fine. Uh, the question was, did, were you selling to white teenagers? Was that the, that, that was the, the, the major concern? It wasn't the, the act of, of doing it or, or the activity that was so objectionable. We talked a lot about the politics and history of all this, but uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about it, The Godfather as a film. Uh, I it it had it had been I don't know maybe five six years. I tend to to watch these every you know half a decade or or, or so uh, you know over Thanksgiving or something. But it had been at least five years since I had seen Godfather one and. Uh, it was mesmerizing right from the beginning. I mean, just uh, efficient, fast moving, you know, 
setting scenes, uh, bringing you into a, an entirely different environment uh, so quickly and so efficiently. Like it's really, there's really no wonder that it, it is a timeless classic. That and the cast they put together. Well, like- did you did you ever <laughs> see the? Uh, uh, there, there are some casting notes that Coppola had. There were people that uh, they wanted to, the studio wanted to force on him. Uh, but there's, there's, a, you can find on the internet some casting notes he took that where things could have gone in a really bad direction. At one point, Lawrence Olivier was uh, considered for uh, Don Corleone, <laughs> uh, Martin Sheen or Dustin Hoffman for uh, Michael. Um, I can see Dustin Hoffman. I can see that. I think that's just because Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino kind of look alike. <laughs> they do. A young Al Pacino, yeah. I have to say that this is uh, by far the best uh, I've, I've ever seen Pacino. I think in his later years, Pacino, no offense to Diego, who's sort of is a Pacino lookalike. Um, but <laughs> but uh, Pacino uh, sort of seems late in later years to be doing a version of an actor imitating Pacino, uh, almost the self caricature. Whereas, uh, in the, in one and two, uh, you know, he's, he's not crazy Pacino. He's this cold, calculating, brutal, ruthless man. Uh, I think it's extremely effective. In the evolution of his character, even just through the first film from when he arrives at the wedding as a veteran from the war, looking, you know, cheerful and happy and innocent and in love with this American woman who's anything but Italian in, in everything that, you know, in, in every way possible. And by the end of the film is is still the same person, looking very much the same. He hasn't aged all that much, but has completely altered in terms of his values, his perception of how things are achieved and what's good and what's bad and what his duty in life is and so on. And far from not be not wanting to have anything to do with his family, he is now at the head of it. I think Pacino does that amazingly. And I think some of it has to do with the screenwriting uh, as well, of course, but, um, but, but the, the acting is just sensational. I also think uh, his performances over time are, are really, really impeccable. I mean, you even get to part three, which, people really don't like for a variety of reasons, many of which are justified. Um, but I think towards the end, the the sort of story that people want them to be and kind of idolize the Godfather films as being about changes. It's it's really it's very much a like sort of Greek tragedy third act where everything falls apart. Like you've got this ascendancy to power and then these terrible acts you know, continuing on. And then the third film is just like really sad when you think about it. He's, you know, sitting by himself, sort of mourning and grieving all of these things that he's done over the course of his life and seeing his family react to it over all of the years. And while it's still not the great films, I think that the first two are, there was a sort of idolizing that people had for the first two films that they didn't totally get the sort of tragic element i think they just saw like 
the ascendancy to power. And they were like, yeah, this is great. The mob's awesome. It's romanticized. You know, you've got in The Sopranos, you've got Tony Soprano and all his friends watching The Godfather all of the time and sort of idolizing it as this thing. And then when you get to three, you're kind of like, oh, this is this isn't what I wanted. This this is terrible. Uh, I feel <laughs> horrible after all of this. But I think it is poignant and um, purposeful in the way that it does that. Um, but I think having it be the third film in a series, uh, it sort of it becomes really, really hard to package and sell that. I had a hard time making. I you know this is the first time that I uh, tried watching the director's cut, and you think maybe. There'll be something to this, you know, that you didn't see you know, when, when three came out. Um, and uh, I just I could not make it all the way through three this time. Uh, R- rarely is a director's cut worth it. I yeah, mean, like, I was going to say I'm that like, too. They have editors and people for a reason. People get paid to say no. Right. Uh, the script just uh, there was a, you know, the. You can buy the, the, the Godfather notebook. Uh, somebody got me this once for, for Christmas, and I never really looked at it before, but I looked at it a little before this. You know, it's a, it was Coppola's book for – he's actually cut out pages of the Puzo novel, and he's got notes in the side about what he wants to achieve in each scene. And uh, it's really interesting to see how he put this together – and how effective it was. And then you get to three and there's such a, a, a tell don't show element about the script. That's not there in the first two. Whereas, you know, things were a little more subtle in the, in the first two, by the time you get to three, it's like they've got notes for uh, what they want the theme of the scene to be. So they just put them right into dialogue. Like at one point, you know, there there was that that theme about politics being like crime that we talked about. That's in uh, one and two. By the time they get to three, there's a scene. This is around where I left off, where Michael just says in Italian, "Politics is just like crime." And you're like, "Well, that's you know, <laughs> let me figure these things out for myself." You know, don't give me the uh, the cliff notes right uh, right in the uh, screenplay. Um, so. It, it really is a significant drop-off uh, in quality from uh, one and two. One thing that I find the Godfather series does very successfully, which is why it enchanted even the mobsters themselves and why the Sopranos are shown to watch it. But there's also, I think, from the tapes that the FBI got of, of mafia guys, they talked about it all the time, apparently. So it was it was a commonplace thing, is that it, it completely misses other than when they have that war after the murder of McCluskey and, and the other Sicilian guy, Solozzo, uh, where they have to go to safe houses and wait there. And you have a few sort of short scenes where you have them sleeping and eating all the time and playing the piano in their, in their wife beater shirts and everything else. It doesn't really ever show mob life as being nerve wracking and boring, a, a really dreadful combination of they might kill me any moment, they might arrest me any moment. And at the same time, I cannot move. I have to stay here and I have to wait. And you see the footage of real life mobsters and you really see the effects of that, you know, because they're chain smokers, they're really fat, they're always driving around, they're very sort of, you know, 
extremely anxious on top of probably being psychopaths, because why would you get into that line of business otherwise these days? But all of that is missed in The Godfather. And so it's aspirational in the same way that probably someone in a CIA cubicle somewhere just listening to boring tapes all day, watching spy movies might think, you know, might be uplifted and think that what they're doing is much more important than it feels on a daily basis. Yeah, it's hard to make a mob movie that doesn't end up uh, romanticizing uh, the life in in some way. It's my dad once said something similar about war movies. Uh, Every war movie, even an anti-war movie, there's going to be something about it uh, that an 18-year-old boy thinks like, well, that'd be really cool in some way. Um, And I think there's a a similar dynamic going on with uh, mob movies, even a movie is squalid and uh, repellent. Great movie, but uh, what it depicts, squalid and repellent as Goodfellas. Uh, there's, you know, you grow up with uh, friends of yours, you know, trading those lines. Uh, you know, it probably wasn't uh, a, a glamorous uh, and exciting line of uh, of work uh most of the time uh it had its stresses and uh, somebody said you probably nowadays you'd be better off actually being in waste management than using waste management as a front um but uh there's you know the the mob movie has uh displaced the western it, and i think the godfather cycle is is instrumental in that um it's really displaced the the western as the american genre you know you had in the 50s the westerns you know uh you know people taming the frontier fighting indians uh the mob the gangster picture uh you know the country has been populated and it's uh immigrant groups uh you know in a frontier that, that that's already settled, how do they interact with the larger society? That's uh, you know, it, you don't, we don't have a lot of Westerns anymore, uh, but gangster pictures are like the quintessential American movie. Now uh, this has also been one of my pet theories for the popularity of breaking bad, which I think is uh, not a terrible series, but I think is, is really overrated. My pet theory is that it is really the only entry in the gangster genre that involves non-ethnic white, white people, uh, Walter White. (laughs) I I think people are subconsciously, uh, drawn to that because here, you know, the Italians have their gangster pictures, uh, Mexican Americans have their gangster pictures. The Irish have their gangster pictures, but, you know, regular vanilla white Americans don't really have any, uh, you know, they, they show up as like Senator Geary. I think people really got interested and maybe overrated Breaking Bad subconsciously for that reason. But like I, I said, that's, never that's my it. pet. I, to me, it was like a... a it, it had its moments and then it became ridiculous when he's assassinating people with <laughs> wheelchair bombs and ricin and 
I'm sorry, Gene. I'm gonna. I just. I stopped recording that last bit. It's so weird that I don't have any of that audio, and no one will hear that piping hot take. <laughs> it's so weird. Um, <laughs> Did you like Breaking Bad? Yeah, Breaking Bad's great. It's phenomenal. Oh. <laughs> it's really good. Landry's gonna selectively put, take that out. <laughs> just cut that. Don't it's worry. Just, it, it's like MacGyver. <laughs> And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home. This is Locked In. All right. So, Diego, Gene, what other types of things have you been watching, you know, playing, listening to um, that you think our, our listeners might enjoy? They don't have to be Godfather related, but if they are, bonus points. <laughs> Go ahead, Gene. Uh, I've, in terms of reading, I've been pretty boring lately. I've read a bunch of policy books, uh, but one that is uh, excellent and tangentially related to our topic is a book called After Nationalism, Being American in an Age of Division by Samuel Goldman. Uh, it's an extended essay on what it means to be an American, what it has mean, the different metaphors we, we've used for Americanism uh, from uh, the Covenant, uh, the Puritans, uh, to the melting pot, uh, to the American creed. And uh, he, what Goldman suggests is that uh, we have uh, been divided as a people uh, almost from the start. And in some ways, that's a feature and not a bug. And instead of uh, looking for some kind of mythic national unity, uh, we should... Uh, learn how to, to get along uh, in the areas where we need to get along. Um, I also, uh, another thing to recommend, although I haven't picked this up in, in some time, but uh, watching The Godfather Cycle has uh, gotten me interested in it, is uh, I mentioned earlier Boardwalk Empire. Um, a, the uh, uh, Steve Buscemi, I think Martin Scorsese uh, directs the first episode. Um and uh, it's a Atlantic City and a larger history of uh, uh, underworld life during Prohibition. A lot of the characters that are instrumental in uh, you know, what became the five families, like uh, Lucky Luciano, uh, are characters in, uh, in, in Boardwalk Empire. In, in, in part, it's almost like a prehistory of oh, cool. uh, what, what you get when... You know, you, you turn to the mob in the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, and like any long-running series, it has its ups and downs, but uh, I think it's uh, it's overall uh, pretty great. And in fact, uh, uh, my wife and I named our dog after the, the lead character, uh, Nucky Thompson. Uh, <laughs> in the uh, So he's Nucky. I absolutely love Boardwalk Empire myself and um it's it's just fascinating to see all these all these historical characters so well interpreted and by all you know well dramatized by by all evidence we've got um really well done i've recently picked up mad men again there is a um there's a sort of cult of the strong silent type which is also a thing in the sopranos and and to some extent, I think in The Godfather as well, this sort of unflappability of of the quintessentially American male who goes about, you don't care about his past, 
it's all about looking to the future. And I mean, it's the scene setting is just excellent. The, I, I find, I find the, the, the acting also very good. The screenwriting's great, but particularly what, what catches one's eye is, is the cinematography and, and the aesthetics of the whole thing. Uh, I, I, I just really enjoy uh, watching it. It's one of those shows I don't get tired of. In terms of books, I, um, I'm just reading The Remains of the Day, which was turned into a film in the, the early 90s with Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson. And it's about a butler working in uh, one of the great manors, one of the great English estates during the interwar period. And his lord is basically a Nazi sympathizer who, with all the right motives, basically invites the Nazi leadership to his house to informal peace summits. And the underlying criticism is this old English idea that you could flesh out the greatest diplomatic treaties around a table in the countryside, you know, while smoking cigars and we're all gentlemen and we can come to an agreement surely. And also this noblesse oblige of the English had won World War One and had humiliated the Germans. And so it was the gentleman's thing to give them a hand now. But it's all told from the perspective of the butler who was observing this and feels a duty toward his lord at the same time as is living in a post-war era now. That's the vantage point from, from which he's retelling it and so has to grapple with with the fact that it was all mistaken and it was all foolish. Um, even that is a reference to real-life events because the, main, the, 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 the lord I'm talking about is based on Lord Halifax, who was a famous English peer of, uh, of, inter, of the interwar period, who's, who was a Churchill foe, uh, one of the people who thought peace with Germany was not only possible, but at hand until the very last moment. So it's, it's one to read and or watch. Uh, I just finished a novel, The Overstory, by Richard Powers. Uh, very, very interesting. Um, multiple perspectives. All of these people, um, the, the first third or so reads almost like completely separate short stories, but it's all these people that in some way have trees that are very, very important to their lives. And it's a lot of very, very pretty prose about trees and roots and branches and stuff like that. But then over the course of the rest of the novel, their stories all intersect and they become involved in uh, ecology and environmental activism and things like that. Some interesting critiques of capitalism, not all of them that I completely buy, um, but I would say a, a pretty nuanced perspective. And it is just beautifully written and does actually talk about the, the value of the environment um, and has an interesting idea of humans place in it. So if that sounds interesting to you, you might enjoy The Overstory by Richard Powers. Um I also just started playing Bloodborne on my PlayStation, which is maddening and frustratingly challenging, but uh, is a good time and uh, is weird sort of Lovecraftian Victorian uh, horror uh, genre where you, there's a blood plague that is sort of infesting this city and you have to go and kill monsters and do some sort of ritual it makes no sense and i get angry playing it um which i don't normally do while playing video games but uh <laughs> um it is still very very fun so if you've played any of the dark souls games or sekiro or demon souls which just came out for the playstation 5 i recommend that oh 
And one more uh, thing I just watched for the first time, a movie that a lot of people had been talking about last year, which is Knives Out by Ryan Johnson. I finally saw it. I rented it on YouTube. Pretty good. A ton of fun. I yeah. really liked it. Fun, a sort of great whodunit, great cast, clever dialogue. I, I, I recommend it. I say have fun. You know, if Except you're Except for I, Daniel Craig trying to do a southern accent. He doesn't do movie. a great southern accent, but I kind of like it because it's very like it's leaning into the genre and how cheesy it is. And at one point, um, the character calls him like what CSI KFC or something, which is just really accurate and funny. So, I mean, if you can get through it and kind of laugh at it, then I think you'll have a good time. But he, he really is like foghorn leghorn (laughs) for sure. But, uh, I liked it. Yeah. Um, for me, I just, I'm still reading Firefly Lane, which is that like Netflix limited series. Um, that's, it, that's more of like a, just more of a, I guess a drama type show, um, that's in multiple time periods. So that, that's fun. And then the, I just watched that, uh, the new movie on Netflix. Is it Army of the Dead? It's in the, the how new, was it? Yeah, the Zack Snyder the new Zack one. Snyder one. Um, I thought okay, so going in thinking okay, I'm watching a zombie movie is like definitely the way to go. Like you can't expect much from a plot of a zombie movie, but I actually thought it was pretty good. Um, and usually I hate that kind of stuff, but I thought it was pretty good. And I mean, it's it's on the longer side. I want to say it's like two hours and forty minutes. Um, but it it was enjoyable. A lot of the like, because I mean, a lot of people watch zombie movies for the action. A lot of the action and like the violence and that kind of stuff was all really well done. Um, a little bit bizarre just because it's like zombies have taken over Las Vegas, um, and then it kind of goes from there. But honestly, I think I think it's worth the watch. I don't know if it needed all of the hype that Netflix gave it, but it was definitely worth watching. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock related content and to connect with us is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E like the philosopher Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of Libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.